0: You. The power of Christ compels you! Talk is Jericho, baby! Talk is Jericho! Talk is Jericho, mama! Talk is me! Alright, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll, and it is Halloween week here on Talk is Jericho. And that means it's the annual tradition of uh, lining up a couple of great, scary, horrific shows... Lined up for you. Starting with today, Kevin Eustace returns uh, to talk about the curse of fame. All the movies, musicians, songs that seem to be cursed by the devil. You hear all the creepy and even tragic stories that surround some of the people involved with movies like The Exorcist, The Omen, and Rosemary's Baby. All of them creepy. And the weird links between the Charles Manson murders, The Beatles, and Mia Farrow. You'll also hear why fans believe that everyone from Eric Clapton to John Lennon to Fleetwood Mac to the Allman Brothers Band are cursed as well, and why musicians might want to think twice before covering Robert Johnson's Crossroads. Kevin's also sharing info about John Lennon's strange connection and obsession with the number nine, what it means, what might have caused singer Harry Nielsen's London home to be cursed, all the other tragedies tied to uh, Buddy Holly's plane crash, so many uh, tragic, scary rock and roll stories It's The Curse of Fame with Kevin Eustace coming up. And guess what's happening on Thursday? Winnipeggers are coming back to you live 9 p.m. Eastern on my Facebook channel and my YouTube channel. Uh, Special uh, live Winnipeggers is also going to be happening on November 5th. But this week on the 28th, we're doing Halloween costumes. Uh, Ribo and Dave will be talking about all of their... uh, costumes they had. I don't know from when. Who knows? You never know what's going to happen on the Winnipeggers. If you didn't see last week's Imitations episode, it was our worst uh, drawing episode yet, and it was one of our best. So go back and watch that on YouTube and uh, my Facebook page. So do that now on my YouTube channel. All right, let the Halloween festivities begin on Talk is Jericho with the Curse of Fame. And we're able to do this thanks in part to our friends at The Zebra. It's been reported that Americans are overpaying on car insurance by over $21 billion. That's billion with a B. I know that searching for a better deal on car insurance can take hours. Who's got the time to spend it doing that? And then if you do spend all that time searching, it only results in nothing but spam calls blowing up your phone. Well, good news. The Zebra.com solves both those problems. The slash Jericho is the nation's leading car insurance comparison site because it's the only place where you can compare quotes side by side from over 100 providers and then choose the best one for you in 90 seconds or less. And don't worry about those annoying spam calls. They won't happen because the Zebra will never sell your information to the spammers. Here's how quick and easy it is. You just answer a few questions on a simple form. And then the Zebra finds you the best rates and coverage in your state. Best part is it's completely free. You can save up to $670 a year using the Zebra.com slash Jericho. I know things are starting to reopen in some states like Florida. Yay. And that means there might be more people in the road where you live. So the Zebra is committed to making sure you're covered at the lowest price possible. How much exactly can you save on car and home insurance? Go to zebra.com slash Jericho and find out. Start saving today at thezebra.com slash Jericho. That's T-H-E-Z-E-B-R-A dot com slash Jericho. The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! As we are around the Halloween season, I always like to... Uh, have some Halloweeny type uh, material. Last year, of course, we did Paranormal Beatles with uh, with Kevin Eustace, who's been on twice since then, Then, Yeah, we've done Paranormal, well, no, this is the second time since, so three times all in. Yeah, yeah, we did Paranormal Beatles, we did uh, rock and roll, ghost stories type stuff, right? And then we did Mr. Crowley.
1: Yeah, Mr. Crowley, yeah.
0: That was the last one, and today you had a great idea of The Curse of Fame. Yeah, which is uh, you had a, a great list of topics and ideas and thoughts. And how did you come up with this uh, this idea?
1: Well, as you know, like yourself, I, I do two podcasts. I do. We need to talk about ghosts and another one called the Dark Paranormal. But they're both like listener ghost stories. But anyone right. who's interested in, in ghost stories, like we are, or the paranormal, your interest doesn't just stop at ghost stories. You know, if you're interested in one, you're normally then interested in UFOs, cryptids spiritualism and exactly. everything else and I never really get a chance to talk about the other stuff because people just go well that's not about ghosts why is he banging on about that so um <laughs> when I come on to your show I get a chance to broaden my horizons a bit so anytime I'm thinking of a show to come back on talk is Jericho I'm like right what can I do which I've really got an interest in it's a bit different and um give me a chance to do a bit of research and paint the walls
0: yeah no it's it's a great idea and like I said it's always awesome having you on specifically because of your of your topics but also too, your your uh, accent is always great to hear on radio <laughs> <laughs> scousers yeah Scouser, yeah so um so the curse of fame so i mean i don't even know how you want to start on this but it seems that there is always these stories associated with different films and and you have the films musicians and songs yeah. some of these i've heard some i haven't i have a couple of my own to to toss in there with you. Yeah,
1: but. it's normally how these conversations go. You normally throw, a, this is why I enjoy them so much. You normally throw something back in, which I've normally not heard of. And it normally leaves me scrambling on my phone, thinking, I've never even heard of that. What I need yeah, to try right, and find right, what he's right, on yeah. about. But um, yeah, it does seem to be, like, you know, I said, the curse of fame, because that is the one thing that links your movies, your musicians, and your songs. It's everybody striving to get noticed, isn't it, at its essence, mm-hmm. really? But I thought, you know, everybody's heard a little bit, you've heard of everyone's mainly going to go on about poltergeist films and things like that you know and all that sort of carry on so i thought if we do a few films so i'm going to try and focus on the exorcist the omen rosemary's baby and then move into music and you know just see that it seems to be what may not be classed as a curse sometimes just a series of serendipity or coincidences that are just really hard to nail down as just a coincidence so i I thought we'd start film wise you know like um the exorcist for me is is the the one that puts the literal fear of God into me any time that it's brought up or Mm any time I watch it. And um, it was obviously, it came out in 74. um, It was based on a book by William Peter Blatty. So he based that on a real story about a guy, well, a boy, should I say, called Roland Doe, who his family were Lutheran and the child started to show signs of possession. So they went and seen a Lutheran minister and he said, I'll take him in. like I'll look after him and see if this still goes on in a religious setting, and it went worse. It went ballistic. And he came back to the parents and said, I don't know what to tell you, but you go and see the Catholics. They know what to do. They deal with this sort of stuff. So Roland Doe went and had this... uh, That's not his real name, obviously, but we don't know his real name. He went and had this exorcism, and it was written about, I think, in the Washington Post, and Peter Blatty was there and then said, I'm going to write a fictionalized version of this. And Roland then became Reagan from The Exorcist. Hmm and then that's the film we know and it's always struck me as a massive there's it's very rarely i think that uh, something manages to break through into culture if you like and the exorcist manages to do that massively i remember i went out with a girl once for example and suggested that we watch the exorcist and airs one night and the mother would not allow the film to come into the house it was mm. on like vhs cassette and she was like no it's not coming in because there was like people have this sense that there's a an evil attached even within the film and I don't know. Did you see ever experience something similar? Like in terms
0: of your upbringing, religious wise. Well, I mean, it's it, something about about for those types of movies always scare me the most because to me they they could be true. I mean, obviously, you know, serial killers and 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 masked you know murderers and that sort of thing. Anybody yeah. you know that could happen as well. But when you're talking about the Omen and the Exorcist and, and Rosemary's Baby, like if you have any type of religious knowledge or religious upbringing at all you know that this stuff could be real. And so that's why even just the concept of The Exorcist is scary. And, and even to this day, like, if you haven't seen that recently, anybody listening, watch it again. It's still fucking, it's just <laughs> like The Omen. Like, I watch The Omen yearly, and it still creeps me out because it's just as relevant and just as scary today as it was in 1973.
1: Yeah, completely. I'm um, And these are the sorts of things where, I mean, I'll go on to it now so we're not, I'm not just waffling with you, but, Starting with The Exorcist, let's say, for example, maybe look at some of the like serendipities and synchronicities within the, the people who are working on the film, for example. So there was a sound effects guy who was very sceptical about the whole situation, but even he, his name was Marceau Vercature, uh, and even he said he felt like he was playing with something that he shouldn't be playing with. And uh, they think he always felt like someone was watching him and there was this sense of evil and being looked at on the set. But the best example of this sort of eeriness that goes within, and this is... From the back of this tale, it seems to then dwell into the rest of these sort of films which dwell on Satan and the occult and stuff. And the guy who played Damien Karras, Jason Miller, he tells a story that when they were filming, they were filming in in Jesuit quarters, like an actual Jesuit training place, if you like. And um, he went to a restaurant nearby, and when he was in this restaurant uh, after shooting one day, an old priest comes up to him, and he opens his palm, and puts in it a medallion of the Virgin Mary. And he says, uh, do you know why I'm giving you this? And he says, no, no idea. And he says, uh, have you ever heard about intervention? And um, Jason Miller says, no. And he says, well, it's a Gnostic concept from the 15th century, he says. But basic idea is, if you do anything about the devil, anything at all to reveal him as the trickster that he is, then he'll do whatever he can to try and stop you from unveiling him. And this medal will protect you from that intervention. So he's like, Right, okay. Bit weird, but thank you. And then they continue filming and he goes three days later, he's walking through the Jesuit quarters and it's all as you'd imagine, like catacombed and little sitting rooms off to the side to the left and the right as you're walking down. And as he's walking down, in his peripheral vision, he catches something and he's like, Did I just did I just so he stops, goes back, and there's a casket laid out in this room. And when he goes in, looks in the casket, it's the priest that given him the medal Hmm. three days before. And he just Jeez. then dwells on this intervention, puts the literal, the literal fear of God into him, like, you know, uh, with this idea of intervention that anytime you try and expose the devil, he'll come after you and try and stop you. Because, of course, mm-hmm. that whole the greatest thing the devil's ever done is make people believe he didn't exist line, as we all know. So, yeah, so that's the key idea that seems to carry into all these films, this idea of intervention of uh, an evil dark force trying to stop this fictional films if you like get made but because of what they made display about the
0: evil one himself well it's interesting because as you were talking i just googled exorcist movie curse and there's a couple other ones here that we can discuss now you said earlier um about feeling weird even just having you and the lady or wouldn't even allow you to bring the vhs
1: yeah yeah into
0: yeah. the house right so billy graham the famous televangelist said the actual film is cursed, that playing it through a projector was an invitation for demonic possession.
1: Wow. Yeah. You know? I, mean, I, I can't believe that from the evangelical side of things, you know. And the thing is, a lot of this, you know, you, I, I should have said at the start, We everybody listening needs to take all of this with a massive bag of salt because, right. you know, it. a lot of it you'll think, people will think, no, no way. Some of it you'll think that's too freaky and coincidental. But if you let it play in your mind, you know, it could, it's not necessarily might be the devil that'll get you, but it'll be your own mental health that'll get you, I think. I think that's why people are quite against Ouija boards and stuff, you know,
0: but. Well, it, it, yeah, it's just like, even now, you know, in, in the pandemic, like if you sneeze or if you have like a, a slight sore throat, just from being a human being, suddenly exactly. it's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, it, do I have it? Am I, am I infected? You know, exactly, am, yeah. am I possessed? Well, yeah, that's <laughs> totally right.
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, there was some of the like little weird bits, obviously attached to the film, where you could argue the intervention starts. So there were a number of deaths associated with the film. Um, Jack McGowan, who played Berk Dennings, the director within the film, he finished filming and dropped dead a couple of weeks later of like complications, strangely with the flu. Wow. Quite an apt time, yeah. So, damn, um, the woman who played Carissa's mother, uh, Vasilaki Mariola, she died. Before filming finished, I mean, she was quite elderly. So, th- and there's all these things you can look at both ways, do you know. Sure. I another guy, there was a night watchman who was looking after the set, and he was only in his early 30s. He dropped dead of a heart attack um, while he was looking after the set, and then the set caught fire and everything burnt down. It delayed filming by about six weeks, except for the room where Reagan was in; that stayed <laughs> fine. <laughs> Of and course. Like, <laughs> the, the last sort of like little strange one. I mean, the omens got loads. I can't wait to crack them with that. But the last little strange one, Exorcist-wise, as a little side note, is when the premiere took place in Rome for the Italian premiere, uh, obviously Rome's like the arguably the most religious city or one of them in the world. The sure. theatre where they were showing the, the film, um, it was next to a 400-year-old church. Nice day, lovely day. And as the day went on with the films used to play in the night, a storm rolled in out of nowhere. No, hadn't been predicted. It just rolled in. Massive thunderstorm and lightning struck the crucifix on top of that church, causing it to fall into the Piazza below and narrowly miss everyone who was cooing to get in for the film. So it's either the best publicity stunt of all time or
0: it's just a coincidence. But, you know. Well, and the, and the last one, it says the actress that played Pazuzu, the voice, the demon, Mercedes McCambridge, was the victim of a horrific tragedy when her son murdered his wife and children before taking his own life
1: no way see i didn't find that one
0: yeah so once again coincidence or not but it's still pretty uh you know pretty creepy when you when you consider all of these things right yeah let's move on to one of my favorites uh the omen there's a lot of creepy tragic things surrounding the cast and crew of this movie as well but before we talk about it I can tell you pretty confidently that there don't appear to be any demonic possessions in my family. At least, I haven't uncovered anything like that in my Ancestry DNA results. An Ancestry DNA test tells you where your ancestors are from, and Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their personal stories. You might find a famous relative, a photo of your great-grandmother as a little girl, or maybe evidence of an exorcism. Whatever you discover, it's sure to change the whole way you look at your family history and yourself. After all, the story of your family is the story of you. And you can order that right now at Ancestry.com Jericho. Ancestry can help you trace the path of your recent ancestors and learn how and why your family moved from place to place around the world. Researching your history is a fun activity for the whole family. No other DNA test delivers such a unique, interactive experience. And I know because I've done it. I took the Ancestry DNA test, and I've had a great time sharing my results with my family. My cousin Brittany, my goddaughter, she's kind of the family uh, um, connection when it comes to the, the history. She enjoyed it. It's been my kids more curious about where they come from, asking more questions about their relatives. And I've shared my results also. With my auntie Joan has been another uh, kind of older family historian from my dad's side of the family. It's helped her with the family tree and uh, the records that she keeps. So it's easy to start making discoveries with Ancestry. Grab an Ancestry DNA kit and start a free trial to amplify your discoveries with Ancestry's billions and billions of records. Start exploring your family story today. Go to Ancestry.com Jericho to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com Jericho. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. Well, let's move on to one of my favorites, which is is The Omen. And like I mentioned to you earlier, I watch The Omen and The Omen 2 yearly. Uh, my 666th episode of this show was a watch along with yeah. Kevin Smith for Omen 2. So Amazing. we are totally obsessed with this. And I actually just texted him and said, I'm doing this podcast. I'm get ready to hit, uh, hit The Omen right now. So so what do you got, dude?
1: Well, here's what I've
0: got. And you've probably got more than this. But again, so I mean, the first thing that
1: I, it's, it is kind of funny, but like, Amazing marketing for the omen. They released it on the sixth day of the sixth month, 1976. So that's just perfect. That's a poster <laughs> right there, isn't it? That's amazing. Of course. Now, Bob Munger, who created the omen, he, he got the idea driving through, uh, I think it was LA, and he thought, what if the Antichrist's already here? What if he's like walking around as a little boy? He took it to a friend of his who knows like people in the industry. They said, we can make a film of this. And he sat down with the group that he initially got together and was like, I've got a quote there. He says, the devil's best trick, as is known, is to work invisibly. And if we take that cloak off and put it in front of center, he's going to not want to let that happen. So we need to be very careful, which, again, Mm. is harking back to the intervention idea that, you know, he's going to try and put a stop to things. Um, The producer, Harvey Bernard, he wore a silver crucifix right the way through production. And he said that he even after the film, he said he genuinely believed that the devil didn't want that film to be made. He said he felt like he wasn't sleeping alone of a night wow. when he was in the UK. And again, it's it it's this intervention topic. But they struggled to get a, a film company on board initially, apparently, because he was a no-one and he just had an idea and a few good producers and stuff. And then they, they needed a huge star. And then Gregory Peck signed up. He got, read the, the role for Robin Thorne, Robert Thorne even. Mm-hmm. And um, they gave it credibility. So then um, they managed to get on board. I think it was with 20th Century Fox come on board with it and now he played robbie thorne who was damien's father and three months before they were due to start gregory peck's son jonathan at 31 years old took a gun and blew his brains out committed suicide gregory peck's son after he'd signed up for the film he decided he was still going to go ahead with the film so he flew to london uh gregory peck did his plane was struck by lightning on the way to london which mm. he took as a bit of a bad <laughs> omen and then the, one of the producers, Nate Mace Newfield, he had a flight book for the week after and had read that uh, Gregory Peck's plane had been hit by lightning, but he thought, now I'll be all right. Lightning doesn't strike twice, but uh, it did. And he, his plane got struck by lightning Jeez. on the way over too. The, really, I re- this is like one of the, the certain stories about the, uh, the omen, sorry, that when I read them, and I've, I've just got a shiver knowing I'm about to tell you this part of it, but one of the scariest ones for me is um, the director, which I think was it, Richard Donner? Yeah, Richard Donner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted shots over London, uh, To like at some point in the film, like if a plane flying over London, he wanted to shoot down onto London City. So they rented a, a cheap plane called a Hawker from the, a local airfield. And they got a call on the day that they were due to set out for, to film from that plane, from the airfield, to say that the airfield had got a better deal for that plane. And if they gave up the slot, he'd give them a bigger discount for the next time that they flew. So begrudgingly, Donner Agreed for that. And it was a last minute switch. Anyway, that plane takes off an hour later. As it's about to leave the runway, a flock of birds fly into the engines. Oh, wow. It doesn't make it off the runway. Comes back down onto the the runway, smashes through the railings at the end of the runway and goes onto the main road where it has a head-on collision with a car. Now, (laughs) yeah. Now this is like where you think, well, hold on, there's coincidences. And then there's this. Inside that car, everybody died with the collision but inside that car was the wife and children of the airfield's pilot wow yeah so yes that's a coincidence you could argue well that's a horrible you know people have died it's a horrible horrific coincidence but it's a bit beyond the realms of just coincidence for me like when i do get a shiver when i,
0: I reread that there's two others that that are sticking out for me have you heard the um the one about the monkeys when Lee Remick and Damien are at the drive through jungle.
1: Yeah, and they go berserk. So they were filming in the safari park, wasn't he? And apparently, yeah. to get the monkeys to go berserk for the scene, uh-huh. they took one of the, the young monkeys and put it in the car with them. So it would make the monkeys go berserk. But apparently, they went absolutely like supernaturally berserk, if you like, and started just dis- dismantling this car. And then they had to speed off, uh, obviously, like you would at a safari park if your car's trying to be dismantled by monkeys. But at that in that safari park, interestingly enough, they were filming also another scene where it ended up getting cut out, where they were walking around looking at lions and tigers. And the guy who was in the safari park who was helping them like be their liaison, at one point whilst they were there, he went over to deal with a, a tiger that they were going to be dealing with. And like he's done every day, he puts his head through the cage, sounds stupid now... And you know where this is going, but anyway, he puts his head through the cage to like say hello to the tiger, and the tiger, who's meant to be nice all the way through its life up to this point, snaps and crushes his skull and just kills mm. him instantly. So um, to get rid of that, I mean, there's been a few animal ones as well as also, you know, the Rottweiler scene in the g-
0: graveyard. Well, just uh, just let me finish off your story. Just to, just 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 to finish off your story about the yeah. about the tiger, that was the trainer. Responsible for the baboons that attacked Damien, really? The Same uh, guy. He, he, yes, and he died the day after filming that scene. Oh with the my tiger. god! So there you go. <laughs> oh my
1: god! That's just be—it is beyond coincidence. I know, say take it with a pinch of salt, but bloody hell!
0: So you were you talking about the Rottweilers? Rottweilers? Oh,
1: sorry, yeah. So the stuntman man who was in the Rottweilers scene—you know where the, the Rottweilers go go crazy—the mm-hmm. stuntman man who was acting with that in that one—he, I got a strange feeling, and he said, "You know what? I'm not comfortable." I want to double up what I'd normally have for this Rottweiler scene. So he got doubled up on his padding and he still wasn't happy. He said, no, you know what? Also put like a a sheet of steel in the arms. He's like, I just, I don't feel good. Um, So they did. He doubled it up, put a sheet of steel in, went through the scene because he then thought he'd be safe. And the performing dogs, who were experienced performing dogs, managed to bite through. They didn't let go. They all went berserk again. They bit through the steel and through the padding. And he was hospitalized with bites. And this is a guy who's literally would have went in with the one sheet of padding, assuming he was fine, because he's done it before, and he was mauled absolutely mauled wow <laughs> it does, and there's all obviously there's then people then do try and drag it away and say there's the whole devil and the black dog situation is that's what's going on, but I don't think it is
0: hi there, sorry for the interruption, but.
1: is his father, not Guy. He came up from hell and begat a son of mortal woman. Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Satan is his father and his name is Adrian. He shall overthrow the mighty and lay waste their temples. He shall redeem the despised and wreak vengeance in the name
0: of the burned and the tortured. Hail Adrian! Hail, Adrian. Hail Satan! Hail Satan! you
1: out
0: of all the world, out of all the women, the whole world.
1: He chose you. He arranged things because he wanted you to be the mother of his only living son. His power is stronger than stronger. His might shall last longer than longer. Yes, Satan.
0: Let's go to the creepiest one of all. How about the decapitation? Have you heard that one? Well, yeah. This is this is kind of like
1: it's next level, really, isn't it? It's so basically right. the, in the decapitation scene, as people will know if they've seen the film. You've got uh, the character, Keith Jennings, is, is like doing some work and he's got a van next to him and he's there's a pane of glass on the van and it's supernaturally, the handbrake comes off and it rolls back, the sheet of glass flies off the back and decapitates him. Um, and the guy who was responsible for that special effect part was called John Richardson. And he'd done that and everyone said, amazing, that looks there good. A year after the film came out, He's working on another film in Holland, and he's driving down the street with his PA, I think, in the middle of the night, Liz Moore, and um, they're just driving away. Anyway, they get involved in a head-on crash, a horrific crash, and the force of the the crash forces the front tyre through the car and decapitates Liz Moore, and he's sent flying from the car. And when he wakes up, because he's, like, being cut, knocked out and he's, like, got broken limbs and stuff, and when he wakes up at the side of the road, when he opens his eyes, the first thing that he sees is a sign on the side of the road that says 66.6 kilometers to the nearest town. And that nearest town, although it's spelled with two M's, is called Omen. <laughs> which is just... That's, <laughs> that's insane, man. It really is, isn't it? It's next level, like, it's just... Absolutely beyond. There was, You know what? There was a, another one that I, I stumbled upon like sort of last wow. minute. The, there was a guy called Alf Joint who was, a, who was the stunt man. You know the scene where Mrs. Thorne is a Catherine Thorne is thrown from the hospital window and she lands, yes. on the, she lands on the ambulance. Well, the guy who done that stunt is called Alf Joint and he'd done a similar stunt, stunt a year later. He was working on a Bridge Too Far. And in this particular scene, he had to do a very similar stunt where he jumps from a roof into the airbags on the floor. He's done it hundreds of times before. Um, and on the video footage of when he does this jump, he seems to twist awkwardly at the last minute. He misses the airbags and he's rushed to hospital in a, like intensive care. And when he comes to, he's really angry. And the first thing you want to know is who pushed him because he said he's done that stunt over and over wow. again and he, he knows what he's doing with it. But he says he was pushed at the last minute and they show him the footage and like the nearest person to you is 10 meters away. And it, again, it just shook him because, but they can see him physically be pushed as well. And then there's also wow. like, you know, like the intervention parts. Like he'll try and stop what you're doing. There's loads right. dur- during the filming part, which is just amazing. It's like because um, all the all the crew and the and the, the cast got freaked out with everything that was going on. So they're like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it so much so that you know the infamous scene where Lee Remick is, um, Damon goes past on the tricycle and knocks her off the stool and she falls over the balcony that was meant to be filmed with like a free and harness. And she said, with everything that's going on, I don't want to do that because I don't think it'll work. And I think I'll die. And so much mm. so that they actually didn't do that. When the um, when you look at it again, they actually put the floor on the wall and put her on a stand and trolley and just asked her to spin round towards the wall. So Oh, wow. So they reshot it because she was so fearful of doing it. And you think, right, well, that's a sign that where everyone's heads at if they're having to reshoot scenes based on people not wanting to right, do it. Right,
0: right, right. And I remember that scene. It looks very strange of like this kind of yeah, exactly, circling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's why they
1: added in the, the flowers dropping so they had still had a sense of depth of when the, the mm. flowers go first. Right. But um right. again, just to the two sort of last things in the intervention category, which again freak me out. When all the crew from the LA, they were staying in the Hilton in London. And they all said, Should we go and have a walk about and see what's going on. So they all met in the lobby in the Hilton. They walk out of the lobby onto the road and there's an explosion in the lobby and the IRA had just let off a bomb in the lobby of the Hilton. Jeez. And they just missed it by a series of minutes. So Gregory Peck with all this going on says, you just all need to calm down. It's, it's kind of comical, really. Like, you just think, you just stop, wouldn't you? He's like, you don't need to calm down. And I'm, I'm going to re- relax you all and take you for a nice meal at a seafood restaurant. It's my favorite restaurant. Just come along. It'll be dead good. So everyone goes, right, okay. Um. So he books the table for half seven. <laughs> and at ten past seven, the IRA have planted another bomb in the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> And, and they miss it again by like 20 minutes. It's like, honestly, God, you just say, I'm not doing that film. And I'm not doing yeah. any sequels. No yeah. way.
0: Oh, man. Well, let's go to the other one. That's uh, Each one I'm Googling says the most cursed movie ever. Exactly. First yeah. it said that exorcist. Then it said about the omen. And now, of course, <laughs> talk about uh, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby.
1: It's an interesting one, Rosemary's Baby, because it's the first of the three. And I, I didn't know that until I started doing this. I've seen them all, but I couldn't really put a chronology on them. Um, but Rosemary's Baby was 1968. It was obviously written, directed by Roman Polanski. Um, now, it's the birth of these Antichrist films, you know, like if somebody's born and he is the Antichrist, or in this case, she's pregnant with the Antichrist and Satan's child himself. Now, this is not really as good as the other two in terms of, I think anyway, in terms of all the intervention stuff, but it is. it does allow a nice little segue into the music side of things, I think. So the guy, one of the main spooky things around it, the guy who was the producer for it was a guy called William Castle. And he hated the film. Mm -hmm. Apparently, even after the film was going up for awards, he'd never leave the house to go to an an awards show. He said that he was afraid that with this film, he was quoted as saying, with this film, I have unleashed evil upon the world. He got death threats Mm -hmm. and hate mail from groups of witches across the States, putting curses on him, spells on him. It drove his mental health into a bit of a decline. And then he ended up having really bad troubles with the kid, with his kidneys. So much so he was hospitalized. And when he was in hospital, he then started to see things that weren't there. And nurses would report, he would shout things like, Rosemary put down the knife. And he was seeing himself being attacked by characters from hmm. the film, which you could argue is just someone's mental health decline. But, you know, it is within the world we're talking. Still, yeah. Um, there was another thing such as like, uh, one of Rosemary's friends in the film falls into a coma and then dies as he's about to tell us something about the cult that's within the building. Now, the the guy who'd done the music for the film was a guy called Christoph Commodore and he fell off a cliff when he was 37, a year after the film was out, and went into a coma for the exact same amount of time as the character in the film and Jeez. then died off the back of that. So... There's all strange. They're the sorts of strange wow. things up till the story that we all know, which is of course right. Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate. Interestingly, Sharon Tate actually tried for the role of Rosemary, but Mia Farrow. Yeah, oh, but wow. Mia Farrow okay. got the role, and Tate's actually in the film in a party scene. She's in the background, moving around. It as an extra. Mm. And now we all probably know Tate's mm-hmm. pregnant with Polanski's child. Goes to a party in Silo uh, Drive, and is set upon by the Manson family. Um, she stabbed multiple times, kills her and her unborn child. And now Polanski says, at the time he seen her when she said she was going to this party, it was the last time that he seen her, and he said he just got a feeling come over him like a heavy cloud that it was the last time he was going to see her. He said he couldn't explain it. He just he just knew. Wow. He would never see her again. Now this is where it gets it's a very it's not a cheeky segue but it's a it's a good segue really because this then ties into the Beatles kind of idea we all know there's an apparent Beatles related curse involved with the Manson family and all that carry on but there's also little links which I didn't know only through researching this for this show and I was like god that's interesting uh, in my opinion anyway and it was uh, there's an apparent Mm -hmm. Beatles related tie into the curse because Mia Farrow as we say she got the role over Sharon Tate but the year before the film she had a sabbatical in India and she stayed and hung out whilst there with the Beatles, who were working on songs for the White Album. The White Album being the album that went on to inspire Charles Manson to then go and murder everyone to the point where his family, if you like, would use the victim's blood to write things like Helter Skelter, Piggies, and titles from other Beatles tracks from the White Album on the walls in blood. Right, And it's just interesting that, you know, for me, it's interesting. Mia Farrow was in India with the Beatles whilst they're writing the songs that somebody would hear back in the States that would inspire them to right. go and kill the person who tried out for the role that Mia Farrow got. You know, it's just all a little bit.
0: Yeah, and also the fact that dear Prudence, Prudence is Mia Farrow's sister. Prudence. I did not know that. That's you what just that sent song is about. A shiver Maybe. right
1: down my spine. Really? Is that is it?
0: Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, anything Beatles, man. No, but that, that is, that's really interesting when you point that out. Yeah, Mia Farrow was starring in the movie. But she was with the Maharishi yeah. with the Beatles as they were writing the song. That, that
1: inspired Charles God, Manson yeah. to go and wow. kill the person who failed to get that role. But obviously, the, the one that we all definitely know about the Beatles and Rosemary's Baby is that the Bramford building where Rosemary's Baby's filmed is, in fact, the Dakota building where John Lennon was shot. Oh, wow. So. There's another time with the Beatles there. That's the whole thing was filmed within the Dakota and the outside scenes that they filmed, that's the Dakota building, where obviously John Lennon was killed. And that, to
0: be honest, Chris, that's me doing a not-so-subtle segue into John Lennon. <laughs> and let me just, before you get started, yes, it was definitely Prudence Farrow, Mia's 19-year-old sister. Oh, my sister, God. Uh, who was there at the time. Yeah, she was in uh, India with uh, with her sister and she had locked herself away in her hut at the ashram in Rishikesh. Where she and her sister were studying transcendental meditation. Oh my god! Uh, They're starting to worry about her state of mind. She got an attack of the horrors, paranoia, identity crisis. She was going crazy, and so John wrote that song to make her uh, feel better. Dear Prudence, won't you come? Oh my!
1: You know what? Seriously, as soon as we finish, I'm going to look at all that, and I'll probably come, I'll probably send you a
0: text saying, "Listen, no, this I've I've lost me mind <laughs> now." Bloody hell! Okay, I told you, man. I can't believe you didn't know that. But I want to talk about John Lennon and the number nine. Before we do, I know this has been a super stressful year for just about everyone. The stress of daily life, especially during this pandemic, weighs on us all. And you know what happens when you're stressed, muscle tension and muscle pain. This happens whether you're an athlete or just a, a regular person trying to get through the day. And that's why you need Theragun. Theragun is a handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And now it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. That's because the all-new Generation 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that's so quiet, you will wonder if it's even turned on. Let Theragun's deep muscle tissue treatment release your tension. And for all you athletes, Theragun can accelerate your recovery after a hard workout game or match And enhance your performance as well. It's great to use just before bed. Use it for a couple minutes on each muscle group to help you relax before going to sleep. You know how hard it is to sleep with tight muscles? Theragun can help you with that. And right now, you can try Theragun for 30 days. There is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need starting only at $199. So go to Theragun.com slash Jericho. Get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's Theragun.com slash Jericho. Theragun, theragu com slash Jericho. Get that muscle relief you need and deserve and do it now. Let's talk about both John and, uh, and, and, and you, where were you saying the number John and the number nine, Yeah, right? yeah,
1: the number nine. So it's, um you know, again, this is more of a, a string. All the music ones seem to be more of a string of synchronicities that could be perceived as a curse, to be honest. right? The Lennon and the number nine, it started off when I looked at that, I thought, ah, there's a few bits, but the more I looked into it, it was like, oh my God, no, there's loads. So Lennon and the number nine then. So it could just be coincidence, but he was born the 9th of October. So that's one. There's his first number nine. His first house was number nine, Newcastle Road. They first played The Cavern Hmm. on the 9th of February, 1961. They met Brian Epstein on the 9th of November, 1961. They broke stateside on the 9th of February, 64, with The Ed Sullivan Show. They played together for nine years. He obviously recorded songs, Revolution number nine, number nine dream, one after 909. His son, Sean, was born on the same day as him, the 9th of October. Uh, And although it was the 8th of December when he was killed in New York, in Liverpool his hometown, it was the ninth due to the time difference. And when he was shot, he was mm-hmm. rushed to Roosevelt Hospital in Manhattan, which is on 9th Avenue. Now, he's actually been quoted. I didn't know that he was aware of this. I thought it was something that we'd all put together as a as Beatles fans throughout the world after his death. But he knew about this, and he apparently was quoted as saying, 9 is a number that follows me around numerologically. Numerology, Yeah, numerologically. <laughs> whatever it is. He yeah. says, I'm a 6 or a 3. <laughs> he says, but it's all part of 9. Now, one thing that I was looking on one of the deepest, darkest recesses of the internet in terms of Beatles and conspiracy theories. So again, this is a massive pinch of salt, but it is interesting. And I've mentioned this previously on the Beatles paranormal show that we've done. There's a, a belief or a, a rumor that John Lennon on his 20th birthday, which would be the 9th of October, made a pact with the devil on a bridge in Mosley Hill, which is a borough in Liverpool for 20 years of fame. So he sold his soul for the devil. 20 years of fame, mm. he died when he was 40. Now, on this wow, like yeah. conspiracy website, it was a really good, it had me believing for a bit. It said the song number nine dream that he done may be him referencing that meeting with the devil. It says, because it was from the and Bridges album, which was his ninth non-Beatles album. The sleeve has a painting uh, of John, uh, that John done when he was nine of a footballer with a number nine on his back. The single number 9 Dream, when it was released, it peaked at number 9 in the US. But lyrically, it says uh, it says it's the lyrics of Number 9 Dream, which is said to be a nod to this deal with the devil, because in the lyrics of it, it says, Was it just a dream? It seemed so real to me. Took a walk down the street, thought I could hear someone whispering my name. Saw two spirits dancing st- so strange. Was magic in the air? I believe, yes, I believe. More I cannot say. I could feel the music touching my soul. The spirit dance was unfolding. And people have said that no, he chose wow. number nine dream because he was trying, hoping that that was a dream because he knew he only had a few years left. Uh, when I was reading it, I was like, God, hold on. I've got a shiver down my spine if this is the case. I'm, go- I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm going to Mossley Hill, tell me guitar.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I remember we talked about, about that, that number nine, but how does that also, too, I'm kind of just following your 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 uh, your rundown here involving the Cray twins.
1: So. Getting back to actual curses, if you like. So there's a story that Brian Epstein, he w- he had a voodoo curse put onto him by 60s East End gangsters, the Cray Twins. Now, for those who don't know the Cray Twins, I don't know how globally they're known, but they're very well known in the UK and certain other places. But they were a 60s gangster duo, really. Two brothers, twins, Ronnie and Reggie Cray. There was a film made of them, Spandar Bally played uh, both parts. Uh, it was actually right, quite, yeah, a really good yeah, film, yeah, to yeah. be fair but they were basically a pair of absolute rotters to uh, use an English term. But when the Beatles came to fruition, they obviously seen the money that was getting bandied about and the fame, and they approached Epstein and said, we want to manage the Beatles. Very bravely, Brian refused. And then they planned to out him like a blackmail plot. They planned to out him as being gay. Hmm. uh, But that fell through because he was kind of saying, well, I'm not bothered. You can do that if you wish. And so they went, right, we won't do that. So instead, Ronnie Cray, turn to black magic because apparently it was known in the east end that if they couldn't kill you through because you were in the public eye or whatever else ron had a series of curses that he could put on you and he involved in black magic and some of them would be wrapping snakes around himself while he stomped and said curses um but he would tend to do it and then the people would genuinely seem to die of ill health and he genuinely believed that through Hmm. black magic he could defeat people not saying at work personally, but as we know, Epstein then died of an overdose at just 32. So, you know, he died young. You know, so I'm right. not saying he was cursed, but very. It's arguably coincidental, especially
0: with the craze. Just <laughs> rotters. <laughs> just a pair of rotters, mate. That's all <laughs> they are. Have you ever heard the? Uh, before we move on to to Fleetwood Mac, have you ever heard the number of the beast? Iron Maiden, uh, strange things that happened when they made that record. No. So this is, it's not as crazy, but uh, they had a lot of uh, technical breakdowns during, during the making of the record. Lots of glitches and that sort of stuff. Uh, electrical faults, equipment breaking down, as it says here, kind of similar to The Exorcist. Wow. But this is the best Go one ahead. of all, though. There's a couple little ones that this is the best one of all. So uh, Martin Birch, who was the producer of the record, he was driving home from the studio after working on the title track, working on the number of the beast and it was raining out, and his car slid off uh, the lane and hit a van. Oh, my God. He gets out of the car to go check out the van, and the van is filled with nuns. (laughs) 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 Yes, and then, similar to the story we just told, he takes, uh, obviously, everyone's not hurt, everybody's okay, uh, uh, and some dude that uh, was driving the van Begins to pray for Martin Birch, thanking God for sparing him for f- further <laughs> harm, and then he takes he he takes the uh, the car to the to the garage to get it fixed, and he gets the the bill for how much it costs. No, and you can guess exactly how much it costs. <laughs> no, six hundred and sixty six pounds. That's amazing. And yes, and Martin, who just passed away a few months ago, uh, apparently told the the mechanic like. I'm not paying that. You got to raise it to £668. <laughs> this is, I don't want the piece of paper with the receipt saying that. So I bought a pack of gum or something. I got it to £667. That's amazing. Pounds. <laughs> anything more rock and roll hitting a van full of nuns? I'm I amazing. <laughs> after, after you were just producing the track, Number of the Beast.
1: <laughs> what a story. That's fantastic. I love that. I'm going to have to tell my partner that tonight. So, uh, what else? I was going to move on to Fleetwood Mac. Now, this is an interesting one because it's. Um, Again, it's not that somebody put A Curse on them. It's a series of, of things. Normally it seems to centre around the founder, members of Fleetwood Mac, and it's it is seemed to be a bit more than coincidental. So as we know, Fleetwood Mac, amazing, amazing band. Founded in 63 yes. by Peter Green and Mick Fleetwood. Now, for those who don't know, Peter Green died recently, and he's an outstanding yeah. mu- he's like one of my favourite guitarists slash musicians of all time. Like um, you know um Abbey Road, Here Comes the Sun King. Here comes the Sun. Mm-hmm. Or Sun King? The, the Sun King, the, off the, you know, Sun King, yeah. Sun King, gotcha. Yeah. Apparently, that was the Beatles trying to write a song as good as Albatross by Peter Green. And when you listen to the two back to back, you can see what they were trying to do. It's um, it's just such an mm. amazing musician. Anyway, um, we'll start with him, Peter Green. He was going into the, the drugs, which, as you'll see, is a lot, that ties into a lot of these tales but drinking drugs became a little bit more prevalent and he started to dabble in LSD a bit, but he was still compass mentor, still writing amazing music. They go on tour to Munich and he gets in with these people who give him impure LSD and by all accounts, they don't just like give him a tab of LSD, they they pour the liquid LSD into his drink by all accounts and he never really comes back. He gets drug-induced schizophrenia, he doesn't cut his fingernails, he leaves the band, he gives all his money away. Um, and he ends up like institutionalized. And that's him gone from the band. And he's, the, you know, he's the founding member. So that's him, you could argue. Well, he's, you know, he's had his fair share of bad luck there. One of the people who joined the band right. when Peter and um, Mick Fleetwood started it was Jeremy Spencer, again, an original member. Now, he took some mescaline on a U.S. tour. It all seems to do with mind altering drugs as well, which is interesting. He took some mescaline mm-hmm. on a U.S. tour. Uh, he started having premonitions about the rest of the tour, specifically the LA leg, and he was like very anxious about it. And saying, "I think we cut it out. I don't want to do it. We'll just skip LA. We'll move on to the next town." And on arrival, he says to McFleetwood, "I'm just going to buy a magazine." When they check into the hotel, so McFleetwood says, "Okay, Sam, See you later." And then he disappears. He's never seen again. He goes to ju- he joins apparently a religious cult, and he's still in that cult today. He just walks out prior prior to the LA gig Mm. and he joins this religious cult. That was it. So that's (laughs) another guitarist down. Then they had um, Danny Kerwin and he was an amazing, very talented, joined them very young, I think about 17, maybe 18, amazing guitarist. And he slowly started to unravel. Again, drugs and drink played a huge part in it. And one day, again on a US tour, he's just tuning his guitar backstage. He has a full-on breakdown start laying into his guitar with his bare fists till his hands are cut open, flings his guitar across the room and walks out, stopping only to continuously headbutt a wall until someone has to pull him off and his head's pouring him with blood. And then he spends the rest of that gig off stage in the crowd, booing the band with blood. <laughs> <laughs> it's the ultimate troll, oh, isn't it? And then... Um, He's, he certainly <laughs> ended, up, ended up homeless, and then the, the last one's very recently Bob Welch, who then filled in I think for Danny Kerwin, or he was there around Danny Kerwin's time. Uh, he lost the use of his legs due to surgery, and he was told recently that he'd never walk again. And about uh, I think it was possibly this year, at some point, he committed suicide. Hmm. Blew his brains out,
0: and then the last the last curse was. Uh... Lindsay Buckingham getting kicked out of Fleetwood Mac because Stevie Nicks told everyone that he's her or him, so he got axed from that one too. So <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean to be honest, I was although, although I preferred Peter Green's Fleetwood yeah. Mac, I was alright with that because I'm a big Neil Finn fan as well, and Neil Finn stepped in yeah, to I replace saw, I, him. So. I, I, I saw
0: that gig, he actually did really good. It was it was a good uh a good replacement.
1: He's great. Yeah, and they play some Crowded Out stuff as well. So if you ever see them, I'll get to see a merge. Like I did once see Velvet Revolver with Scott yeah. Weiland singing. And I was like, this is Guns N' Roses yeah, 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 and Stone yeah, yeah, on my Pilots. Exactly, this is exactly. amazing. Exactly. It's just that good. So yeah, sticking on with the music side of things, there's obviously an, another series of serendipity and coincidences which fit under a curse theme, allegedly, which is the Buddy Holly curse. Now, this seems to be, to me... More, not necessarily a curse, but more a lot of people who have had a lot of unfortunate circumstances who are associated with Buddy Holly, you know, as opposed to an actual curse that's been put on someone. And there's a list of these, you know, like we know that in 1959, February, his plane crashed, killing him, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, and they were all going on this rock and roll tour. But the guy who replaced him to go on that tour was a singer called Ronnie Smith. And he ended up hanging himself in a bathroom in 62. Eddie Cochran was due on that tour and he always felt guilty that he couldn't make it. He felt like he cheated death. And then a year later, he had a car crash in the UK and his last song was Three Steps to Heaven and he was backed by the Crickets, oh, wow. which is yeah, a bloody nice yeah, totally. Holly tie-in there. That is a little <laughs> bit weird. Like. There's quite a few, like the Crickets then got a new frontman called David Box and then he tried for a solo career at 22, but at 22, the same age as Buddy Holly, he dies in a plane crash. So there's quite a yeah. lot of little weird things that go in. Like there's a guy called Bob Fuller who loved Buddy Holly. And after Buddy Holly's death, he'd got to know Buddy Holly's parents and they put him in touch with Buddy Holly's producer and got him a record deal. Now, he was found dead in his car the day after recording a cover of a Buddy Holly song, Love's Made a Fool of You. But they said it was suicide, but apparently he was beaten to a pulp hmm. and covered in gasoline and he had a bit oh. of a time with the mob. But it was an officially officially a suicide, so they say. But there is quite a few as well. Like um, the guy who was a screenwriter, Robert Gitlay, who's a screenwriter on the Buddy Holly story. He committed suicide before the film was released. And the only other one that I could find tying into this was a guy called Lloyd Copus, who'd performed several times with Buddy Holly before his death. He died when the plane he was flying crashed near nashville now interestingly on that plane was patsy klein and she in the lead up to that flight had told several people that she knew she was going to die not necessarily in a plane crash but she'd said to several people like june carter and people like that i'm not coming back oh you won't see me this will be the last time you see me which isn't you know that's not a buddy holly curse but it's tied in they're all tied in in some weird serendipitous way
0: yeah absolutely and it's amazing that a lot of this um people feeling these premonitions that you're not going to see somebody again or, or, you know, you're not going to see me around again. It seems to happen quite often. Yeah,
1: it is a weird one. Like, as we said before, Roman Polanski had that overriding feeling. I mean, I've personally, touch wood, never, ever seen someone and thought, don't think I'm going to see you again. And I never do want to feel that because I think it would drive me absolutely mad. But, uh, yeah, so that's the Buddy Holly section, really. To be honest with you, Chris, I could have... With the amount that people do attribute to the Buddy Holly curse, you can do a full hour, but it's not worth it because I guarantee you, you end up saying things like, and then his pet gopher um, jumped out of a window and you're like, yeah. well, that's nothing to do with it. You know, but people have said, Oh, no, it is, it is.
0: So we need to talk about the Hungarian suicide song because it's pretty crazy and we'll get to that. But first I want to th- I say thanks to our friends at Steven Singer Jewelers who are not crazy. Not only do they support Talk Jericho, they also have our backs when it comes to these special life occasions that I know uh, guys sometimes screw up like like we know we always do. So if you're looking to take that next step in your relationship and you need the perfect diamond ring to celebrate the occasion, go to IHateStevenSinger.com and check out the Ready for Love Engagement Ring Collection. And if you need some help picking out the perfect ring, Steven Singer has real expert jewelers on call to help you make your decision. Steven offers virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, emails, all with extended hours so you can get the help you need to make sure you get that, yes, Stephen is not going to let you screw this up. And, of course, you're going to get a great price and an amazing quality. And that's why other jewelers hate Stephen Singer. That's why we all love Stephen Singer. Stephen Singer's been selling online for over 20 years and offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping as well. Plus, he's got interest-free financing available online, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day back with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It doesn't get any easier than that. So go to IHateStevenSinger.com and get fast, free, and safe shipping. Stevensinger Jewelers, that's IHateStevenSinger.com. Talk is Jericho, also sponsored by NHTSA. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you may feel tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't do that ever, Because the naked eye trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they really are. And remember this, they cannot stop quickly. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. Think about it, over one mile to stop. By that time, it's too late, and the result is a potentially deadly crash. The point is, you can never know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly. Even if it sees you, it could end in serious disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way, and you just need to remember one thing... Stop, because trains can't. Well, let's talk about the Hungarian suicide song. This
1: is cool. I'll, well, I say cool, but you know. Eerie and creepy, need It is eerie and creepy, yeah, but, but in a cool way. But um, obviously a very touchy subject as well. So there's a song called Gloomy Sunday, and it's known as the Hungarian suicide song. Now, it was first written by a Hungarian pianist called Rezo Serez in 1933. And it was originally entitled The World is Ending. And he wrote this melancholy lament about war and about the frivolity, and not the frivolity, sorry, the absolute banality of war. And the final bit was a prayer about the horrors which man has brought into the world. Now, the English version with the lyrics as we now know them was first done by Hal Kemp in 1936 and gave it its name that we call it today, Gloomy Sunday. But why it's known as the Hungarian suicide song is down to some very eerie things that took place um, when it was first released. So on its original release in, in Hungary, sorry, the song's climb in popularity seemed to coincide with a rise in suicides in Hungary. Now, people looked at those two figures and were like, right, Is that just coincidence? But then, whether it be anecdotally or not, there were stories about people having the door breaking down, broken down. Sorry, and when you'd go in, they'd be hanging from the light bulb, and "Gloomy Mm. Sunday" would be on the record player, like they'd just listen to it and then um, and then top themselves. So people surmised that one led to the other, really. And then the story hit the headlines, and the press got hold of it, and it blew up everywhere. And there were cases of people, as I say, you know. Someone would be dead in the living room and the record would either be smashed or it would be playing continuously. And it all just went all over Europe, this story. And eventually Hungary banned the song from being broadcast because they were that fearful of whether it was down to an actual curse of a suicide song or it was people going crazy like they do tend to when things get in the press. They banned it from being played. And that's kind of hysteria. Made its way to England and the BBC read the same story and instantly they put a ban on Gloomy Sunday being played on by any BBC outlet and they only lifted that ban in 2000. Oh my gosh. Wow.
0: Like 80 years later or 70 years later, whatever. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I don't know whether it's because they looked and went, oh, Christ, that's still on there. <laughs> that's silly. Let's get rid of it. Or whether they were like, no, it's now safe to do so. Isn't
0: it something to do with the tritones too? Like the, the the song Black Sabbath, the bow, bow, bow. Like that was some kind of yeah. evil thing back in the day. Possibly, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I didn't look into the
1: necessarily the composition of it, but I would not be surprised. Um, now, interestingly, Therese, the, the, the guy who wrote the song added to this whole myth of the song because he did come out and say that, firstly, he said he confessed that the song was originally written in memory of his girlfriend who had committed suicide. Hmm. And then after divulging that, he tried to throw himself out of a window but survived and then strangled himself to death with copper wire. So it's added to the mythos that embedded within this song is this thing that can absolutely take you to the low depths of desperation. Um, So much so that Billie Holiday actually recorded a version for the US market. And again, it spread like wildfire throughout all the little territories and states that, you know, just listening to it, there's a chance you're going to kill yourself after you've listened to it. And it will bring on a series Mm -hmm. of negative thoughts. And several states, although it wasn't blanket banned in the US, several individual states did ban the song from being played, unofficially worried because that version may set people off. Now, as a side note, this is on Spotify, so you know people should listen to it.
0: Listen to it at the peril, but uh, it is on there. Just talking about the tritone, uh, that is those chords of uh, uh, that Black Sabbath plays, or it's the beginning of Y Y Z as well, the beginning of Purple Haze. Those chords. It said uh, in the Middle Ages, composers and singers were forbidden from using flatted fifths, which is what the tritone is, because of the dissonant, demonic tone it creates. It was called Diabolus in Musica. Oh, wow. It was born in that era. Since high clergymen found the tone to be the antithesis of godliness, there's no evidence that the technique was ever officially banned. <laughs> but it was distasteful to the church, so no one dared to integrate it into their music until the evil Black Sabbath. <laughs> there you Amazing. go. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of cursed songs, Crossroads, the famous Robert Johnson song, uh, also has a lot of negativity surrounding it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody. Again, most people know the story of Robert Johnson in terms of the guy who sold his soul to the devil, get, handed the devil his guitar, the, the devil tuned it, or passed him it back, and the next day he walks into a nightclub and plays yeah. like Slash and um, or the, yeah. the blues equivalent of Slash. So that's Robert Johnson, but he, then he, he also obviously, he wrote a song called Crossroads and not only is it meant to be Robert Johnson who's cares, but it's meant to be the song Crossroads itself, and performing it can allegedly curse you as the performer, with the same sort of fate that Robert Johnson met, i.e. the devil will come and try and get you. Now, Eric Clapton and his band Cream recorded it on Wheels of Fire, one of their albums. Now, soon after the band collapsed, Clapton became a heavy heroin addict. Now, i Somebody, have, some other people have said, you know, well, later on, don't forget, he got clean and his son then died yeah. from falling from a window. And I'm a bit like, yeah, but if he's fought the thing that was like the heroin, which is meant to be the thing that was meant to have been the curse, then I don't want to say they're related, but it's still not bloody nice at the end of the day, Right, obviously.
0: sure, sure.
1: Yeah, terrific, horrific, it? it's, it's terrific. But I mean, the... Then there's the Allman Brothers as well. Like Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers performed that song, Crossroads. Many times as like a a thank you to the crowds that they play for. And he was killed in a motorcycle accident trying to avoid a truck. Now, a year later, the guitarist- Bass player. Barry Oakley, I think his name is, who would support him. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, he he would support him when he'd do those performances. He died in a motorcycle accident at the exact same location. Unbelievable, yeah. Same
0: location and basically the same way.
1: Exactly, yeah. And then there's, uh, like, apparently Lynyrd Skynyrd would play it too. And um, then, of crash, course, they had the yeah. uh, plane crash. Wow. So, I don't know. You know, again, get out that massive bag of salt.
0: Well, yeah, and, and Skynyrd has a whole shitload too. That that's the whole other show. You, it's not just the crash, but there's the subsequent years yeah. afterwards. So. You know, like you said, if, if that started with Robert Johnson selling the soul of the devil, I would say, anybody listening, don't cover crossroads and don't listen to, uh, <laughs> to glo- Gloomy Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, we've just absolutely decimated uh, Robert Johnson's Spotify rank takings there,
0: haven't we really? Another curse song is uh, is Without You, which I believe is a Harry Nilsson song.
1: Yeah, well, this is it. The Without You is arguably, when you Google curse songs, that'll be the first thing that pops up. It was originally written actually by a Liverpudlian and a Welshman yeah. from Badfinger, the band that the Beatles signed to Apple. And it was uh, the Liverpool guy was Tom Evans and the Welshman was Peter Ham. Now, they basically got into bad financial advice when Harry Nilsson got hold of the song and, and made it the song that we all know because he made it popular. They got a load of royalties off that, but they didn't get a penny of it. And um, Peter Ham, due to this, hung himself in his garage, quoting the, the financial advisor. I can't remember what the guy's name was, but he said he'd take him to hell with him. Now, a few years later, Tom. Uh, Tom Evans, he hung himself in his garden due to the same situation. Like they both entered financial ruin because they just got bad advice throughout their careers, uh, which is obviously horrible. So there's the two the two writers of the song gone. Then Nilsson records it. He gets a huge hit. Can't really handle the level of fame he's being catapulted into. Uh, although he was semi-famous prior, but um, he obviously then becomes a, a mm-hmm. craven drug addict, Alcoholic With the money from the song which we touched on with the Paranormal Beatles episode, he buys a flat in London, uh, 12 Curzon Place, and he rents it out to famous people, two people being Mama Cass, who dies in that flat, and Peter Moon, who has an overdose in the flat years later. So anything he seems to try and do with that revenue from the song seems to be cursed, as well as anyone attached to the song, mm-hmm. because then in later years we have Mariah Carey who done a version of it. And allegedly after recording it, her mental health suffered and she ended up sectioned. So again, it's just, and it, you know what is it's a weird thing with Without You. Before I was even into, look, before there was, I had access to Google, and talking like as like a 14-year-old kid, I would put on Without You, the Harry Nilsson version. And there is something within that song I've always thought it, which does grab something within you mm. that, I don't know, it, it's got the ability to drag you to a low place, that song. It's really eerie. So... I don't know. If you're performing at night on, night in, night out,
0: maybe it does sure, have a cumulative sure, effect on absolutely. you. Sure, absolutely. You said that's the flat, the flat that he owned is the same one where Mama Cass and Keith Moon died in. Uh, Harry Nilsson's flat, like you said. So, Um, yeah, man. Well, as we start to to wind down, there's a few, there's a few more here. I mean, where do you want to go to? Uh, There's a couple great ones left. Well, I thought what
1: we could talk about, there's a really interesting one is, um, a guy, and now this again, it's not really a case. It's just very interesting. There's a guy called Jim Sullivan and he's like a folk musician or he was a folk musician, should I say. Now, interestingly, his parents were Irish American and they moved from Nebraska, I think to, um, California initially and they worked in defense they were like working in military defense and he in a songwriting career had a very heavy fixation on UFOs and aliens and I always think that it might be due to do down to something that he's seen due to his parents being in defense I don't know that's probably stretching it a bit too far but anyway one of his albums that he released in 69 was called UFO and it's all about meeting UFOs and all this carry on Anyway, his career takes a bit of a swan dive and he decides in 1975 that he's going to drive to Nashville to meet one of his friends over there from LA, jumping his Beetle that he's got, his VW Beetle. He's going to drive to Nashville. All he takes is um, a load of money, his guitar, some records to sell while he's down there and some clothes and to drive down to Nashville. Anyway, he never arrives in Nashville and his car's found in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. It's still got all of his money in it. So it's not a robbery. He's still got his guitar in it, his clothes, and all of the records. The car door's left open. And he's in the middle, basically, of this, for want of a better phrase, kind of little village desert. And he's never been seen since. No, no record of him has been found. The theory is he was abducted. And that all through his life, he knew what he was talking about, sort of thing. Just a lovely little... When I say lovely, you know, you've got to always remember that somebody has gone missing. They've got a family. Well, yeah, of course,
0: it's a very, it's a very juicy story for sure. You know, it is. Yeah, it was it the guy from maybe Iron Butterfly that was uh, looking into time travel and then same thing just just disappeared. Have you heard that one before? No, that's amazing. We do some googling on this. <laughs> well, yeah. But but once again, yeah, you get these weird uh, weird stories. Um, in rock and roll, which, you know, once again, surrounded by so many weird people. But here it is, yeah, the the Philip Taylor Kramer uh, was in Iron Butterfly. Yeah. And he created Total Multimedia Inc., a company that did pioneering work in video compression technology. And uh, he was, he, let's see, he made a 911 call saying he was going to kill himself. And that's the last anybody ever heard from him but it was if he had simply vanished in the thin air. Something happened to him in his head or or in the terminal. They found his van spotted at the bottom of a Malibu ravine by hikers in a canyon and ruled a possible suicide, but they never found him, and he had been working on a revolutionary method of transporting information and matter through space. His father remained unconvinced his death (laughs) was a suicide. Taylor told me a long time before there were people giving him problems, they wanted the technology Several of them had threatened him. He said, if I ever say I'm going to kill myself, don't believe it. I'm going to be needing help. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What you do? Well, I, you know, I mean, I am Butterfly.
1: I've never heard you. Oh, well, maybe you've heard of my time machine. <laughs> exactly. Amazing.
0: So, um, yeah, there you go. Once again, time machines and alien abductions and all this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, once again, rock and roll is such a strange collection of characters as it is that all of these stories, like yeah. you said, take them with a grain of, of sugar, a grain of salt, but it sure makes it interesting. You know, like we would never, we would never be talking about Jim Sullivan no, if exactly. he hadn't possibly been abducted by a UFO.
1: Well, listen, I know I've, I've listened to that UFO album and it's quite good. It's like Tim Harden in places. It's, it's relatively decent, but I would never have listened to that so- album if <laughs> right. not for being interested in UFOs. And I'm sure that wherever he is, God rest his soul, or if he's in space, I don't know. But, you know, I'm sure that like, I don't know whether he'd be pleased or not about that. If it's like, no, you should listen to my music because I'm great, <laughs> not because you think <laughs> I'm
0: on Venus. Let's uh, let's tell one more story about uh, the curse of Bone Thugs and Harmony. So, Bone Thugs and Harmony is an interesting one. So,
1: it's not a long one. If I'm being perfectly honest, yeah, It's just it's a little, little addendum. Uh, addendum. But it ties in. I got this actually from a very strange website. So, this needs the whole bag of salt. But basically, do you recall Bone Thugs and Harmony had a song called Crossroads? which was, meet you at the crossroads, meet you at the mm-hmm. crossroads, sort of thing. I mean, I mean, it sounds just like that, it's that good. <laughs> but um, they, uh, it was a, the guy who was putting through a lot of the crossroads things that didn't make any sense about it being cursed. He was saying that there's an argument that Bone thugs and harmony they have a song called Crossroads, albeit not the Robert Johnson version, but they apparently used a Ouija board at the start of their career to divine, or to, uh, as divination to see if they'd be hmm. successful. And they took some of the decisions based on, like, what this Ouija board said. You know, like, um, they'd ask, me, like, should we go to this particular re- record producer meeting? And it'd be like, yeah, you should go. Right, we're going because the Ouija board said we're going. Um, so when you hear things like that, you know, I'm not surprised that they're not still out <laughs> in the charts now, to be honest.
0: <laughs> uh, I think, uh, I think if nothing else, we've, we've now discerned that you need to do a cover of Bone Thugs and Harmony Crossroads. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah kevin it's
0: always definitely. a blast talking to you man and uh you keep coming up with these amazing tidbits and stories and uh i'm sure uh you'll be back on when you when you come up with something uh something else oh that's great thanks again for having me on chris it's you're, a, you're a halloween tradition here on talk is jericho so uh, you got uh i like it you got a year to come up with something else <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh i'll do it i'll do it don't worry
0: cheers man thanks dude thanks chris see you now